Father in heaven, I do thank you so much for New Day of Life. Lord, I thank you for the privilege we have of knowing you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have sent, the spirit of truth to give us understanding in the truth. And now, Father, I pray the Spirit would guide our understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I came across a statement recently. I mean, came across. I've read it before, but it didn't impact me the same way. In Desire of Ages, Ellen White says, she comments on when the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. And she makes this statement, there is comfort in truth, but there is no comfort in error. And that's why the Holy Spirit's called the Comforter. Now, that's important because what that means is, in the words of Jesus, we can know the truth. You shall know the truth. The way things are today, we're getting to the point where we just really can't know. I mean, you read the Bible your way, and I read it my way, and you interpret your way, and, and I interpret my way, and who really knows? And we have almost made things so ambiguous that truth, you can't even know truth. There's no comfort in the truth. And uh, I remembered a story about Abraham Lincoln. He was debating with another man, and the guy was being contentious with him. And so Lincoln said, let me ask you this question. How many legs does a cow have? And the man was frustrated, and he's like, well, four legs, of course. And Lincoln said, well, what if you counted his tail as a leg? How many legs would he have now? And the guy said, five, I guess. And Lincoln said, that's where you're wrong. Calling his tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. A lot of things today that people are calling truth, but that doesn't make it truth. And the Lord's truth can be known. Now today, our topic is, this week, it's the future of Adventism. And will our biblical faith give way to culture? And today, the subject is the everlasting gospel. I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. We could probably quote this together, but I just want you to note the language here in Revelation 14 in verse 6. This is the first angel's message. The Bible says in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fe <clears throat> Pardon me, fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And that first angel is a call back to worship God according to truth. That's what it is. And I'm trying to figure where to put all my stuff. But the Bible uses that language, the everlasting gospel. And I guess it, it should be common sense to us as Seventh-day Adventists, but maybe you're not aware of this, that there are people who believe that some of us are saved different ways than other people are saved. There are Christians who believe that the Jews were saved by law-keeping, but we in the Christian dispensation are saved by grace, which is ridiculous because nobody can ever be saved by keeping the law. There's one gospel, there's one name given under heaven among, uh, by which uh, must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So the gospel is everlasting. It's the one way, the only way anybody has ever been able to be saved. Now I'm going to share some history. We're going to have a, it's going to be a history class today. So I didn't tell you that. We didn't tell you that earlier because some of you maybe who ditched history in high school may have ditched today, but you're here now. I'm going to give you a little history lesson because what, we're, what I want to touch on and 
the, the, the issue of the gospel and giving way to culture is something that has been under attack for decades in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm going to share with you some of that history today. In uh, 1977, as the... How many of you know what I mean when I say the Ford crisis? Okay. Desmond Ford was an Australian theologian, and uh, maybe I should have shared. Uh, Jim didn't share yesterday, but we had grown up. Our family grew up in the Adventist church. My parents were first-generation Seventh-day Adventists. But they ended up leaving the church. So I just spoke at a youth camp meeting in uh, Carolina, and I told the kids I was a, what did I call myself? A second-generation, first-generation Adventist. Because my mom and dad were the first ones to come in the church, but then they left the church. And they were out of the church when we came back into the church. And my mom is here today. Where are you, Mom? It's my mom's birthday, too. Mom, where are you sitting? She's hiding back there now. She didn't want to... Mom's birthday today. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear mom. Happy birthday to you. And many more, right? So, and I praise the Lord that, that my mom is back in the church as well. My dad's in the church. Um, but there was that time of the Desmond Ford crisis that our family left the Adventist church. And we were out of church and out of Christianity for, in my life, for about 11 years before the Lord started moving to bring me back into the faith. It was during that period of time that a lot of Seventh-day Adventists were challenging their faith. And it was during the height of that, well, it was heightening, that a man, an Anglican minister by the name of Jeffrey Paxson, released his book, The Shaking of Adventism. Now, I want to note something from Paxton's book. There's the book by Paxton, very interesting read, but he says something that I think is one of the most profound things that's been written that I think more Adventists need to understand. And unfortunately, I wanted to pretty my slides up a little bit more, and I, uh, with all the other things I'm doing and biting off more than I can chew in all reality, um, at, at least I have something up there so I'm not just endlessly reading and you have nothing to follow along with. He says, what is it? that Adventism believes it has to offer the world? What is the contribution which, for one reason or another, it feels it is particularly equipped to make? Now, most people would say, oh, it's a Sabbath and the state of the dead and some of these things. Now, I want you to notice what he goes on to say. For the Adventists, there can be but one answer, the gospel. Now, don't, don't miss what he's saying, even from the onset. What is it that the Adventists contribute to Christianity or that they can say they contribute different from the rest of Christianity. Now, I'm telling you right now, some of you right now might be unsettled and say, hey, does the conference know he's even saying what he just said? That the Adventist gospel is different from the gospels of the rest of the Christian world? And so I alluded to this in the morning meetings. For those who weren't there, or even those who were, let me clarify something. I don't want to say other churches aren't preaching the gospel, but I'm going to say they're preaching an incomplete gospel because the gospel is a remedy for sin, and sin is transgression of the law. And when you get rid of the law, what's the remedy for? And so it's really hard to grasp the significance of a saving medicine for a disease that doesn't exist. For the Adventists, there can be but one answer, the gospel. His movement is a movement of destiny. He sees it as destined to climax in what is called the loud cry, 
a climactic gospel proclamation attended by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in latter rain power. All will have forced upon them a decision for or against Christ. After such a confrontation, the Lord will come again. Notwithstanding the correctness or otherwise of this claim, he's an Anglican, he doesn't believe that, but he's saying, so whether you agree with the Adventists or not, he says, this claim is nothing short of astounding. The Adventist believes that his movement and no other movement is God's chosen remnant, especially commissioned by God to give the message of the Gospels and so usher in the return of Christ. That is a powerful statement. And that's what he's saying. Hey, that, that, what a claim. In fact, Paxson's saying, if only I could believe that claim, which he didn't. He says, at this point, an evangelical churchman must pause and confess his shame. In so many of our investigations into Adventism, this astounding conviction has received little or no elucidation, no clarification. We have so often given the impression that Adventists are concerned about anything but the gospel and that the movement is characterized by a sectarian majoring on minors in matters of theology. We must apologize to Adventists for this terrible oversight. Let it be understood once and for all, any critique of Adventism which hopes to penetrate to the heart of the movement must come to grips with its concept of the gospel and its biblical and theological support for that concept. To fail here is to be wide of the mark. To fail here, he said, is to be wide of the mark. I want to tell you something. Paxton's book, again, written during the height of the Ford controversy of the late 70s and early 80s, was only the outgrowth of something that had happened a long time earlier in our history. We're talking about the gospel giving way to culture. How many of you have heard any discussion on an Adventist book called Questions on Doctrine? Okay, well, we're going to talk about it, and I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist now. I guess I risk that. I did not join ministry, become a minister to make friends, and I like friends. <laughs> But there's a history that too many Adventists are unacquainted with. And you're going to see by the end of today's presentation, Lord willing, that a lot has changed. You see, in the, in the 1950s, there was a man by the name of Walter Martin. And Martin was a, uh, the editor of, sorry, Martin, Martin was an associate with the editor of Eternity Magazine. I don't think he was officially hired there, and I forgot to check my facts again going in review. The editor was a man by the name of Donald Barnhouse. And Eternity Magazine was a leading evangelical magazine. Now, when I say evangelical, the word evangelical means you're spreading the good news of the gospel. That's the technical word, and, and from that standpoint, we better all be evangelical. But when I use the word evangelical, I'm using the word that fundamental Christian bodies uh, of other denominations call themselves, okay? Gospel proclaimers, right? So the leading evangelical magazine at the time was Eternity Magazine, and Donald Barnhouse was the editor of that magazine. 
Walter Martin had written books on uh, cults. And he was revising a book that he wrote called The Kingdom of the Cults in which the Seventh-day Adventists were included. And so one of our ministers wrote to him and said, I would like you to reconsider whether you're going to put Adventists in that book or not. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of an Adventist leader. I can understand that, saying, you know, it would be more helpful if we didn't appear in a list of cults. And so they agreed to dialogue together. And some key leaders from our church met with Dr. Martin and Dr. Barnhouse to go over some of our fundamental beliefs so that Dr. Uh, so that those two gentlemen could assess whether or not they believed they were cultish. Now, there's so many things I could say here. Some, there's some things you have to understand. First of all, about Drs. Martin and Barnhouse, they were both Calvinists. Okay, That means, among other things, they believed in predestination. They believed in original sin. These are doctrines we don't or didn't believe in. They don't believe that the law is still binding upon Christians. And I'm going to tell you that to try to fit the Adventist faith into the framework of that just can't happen. You're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Let me say a round peg in a square hole. I guess if you get the sizes right, you can jam something in there. But you get what I'm saying. So our leaders met with their leaders and I believe that our leaders were well-meaning in doing so. But I believe that they, in attempting to define the Adventist faith in terms that would be okay to Calvinists, evangelicals, they confused the Adventist faith. The result of the dialogue was a book that was published called Seventh-day Adventist answer questions on doctrine. And the idea of the book was, if you're a non-Adventist and you want answers on Adventist doctrine, this is your book. That book became a book that was given out to others as well as used in a text, as a textbook in our schools, teaching our people Adventist doctrine, only it was Adventist doctrine that was more appealing to the evangelicals. There have been debates in our church over this. Is it a big deal? Is it a little big deal? I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. I'm not going to try to pull skeletons out of the closet. I don't know. I, I haven't talked to these men. They're long gone who are behind the book. I don't want to impugn their motives. But I'm going to tell you I think it was a mistake based on where we are today. We don't have to have discussions with one another. All we have to do is go to the evangelicals and say, what did you understand happened from that dialogue? And that's what we're going to do here on the screen. This is an article that was written in Christianity Today in February of 1990 by a guy named Kenneth Samples. Now, Samples actually had taken over the ministry of the late Dr. Walter Martin. He was a correspondence editor of the late Dr. Martin's Christian Research Institute. And he wrote this, this uh, because after this interview in the 50s, Martin took Adventists out of the cult section of his book, put them in the appendix, 
And he wrote a book called The Truth about Seventh-day Adventism, how they're not a cult after all. I should have queued up our guys here. AV guys, I have a video. It's on my laptop, and I'm going to play it in about 10 minutes or so. And it's about a 10-minute interview. How many of you have ever watched a show on YouTube called The John Ankerberg Show? John Ankerberg was an evangelical minister, and during the Ford crisis, they had the publisher of the Adventist Review on their show, and I, I, again, not wanting to throw anybody under the bus, but if you've watched it, it's an embarrassment. In part because the way they framed their interview, William Johnson, who was on the show, he said that they didn't give him a heads up as to what they were really going to do when he got on that show. They were just going to have this congenial discussion, and then they tried to nail him to the wall, and he was not prepared for it. But it will give you a flavor of what was going on. And in this video, what you see that came during the Ford crisis, this is what they basically say. And Dr. Martin is on the, the interview with John Ankerberg, the host of the show. Now, Barnhouse isn't there, but Martin's there. And Martin's basically saying, you know, back in the 50s, when I met with your leaders, you guys said you believed this. But the way things are going today, which incidentally, and we'll get to this, which incidentally is what Desmond Ford took to its logical conclusion. Desmond Ford was disfellowshipped from the Adventist Church. Is anybody aware of that? For basically following through on believing questions on doctrine. That's the reality of it. And you're going to see that in, in uh, Sample's article and in the interview with Martin. So let's move on here. I want you to note some of this article. He says, uh, Kenneth Sample says, much of the doctrinal controversy that emerged in Adventism in the last several decades can be traced to their interaction with evangelicals in the late 1950s. Now, again, he's writing this in 1990, looking back on this whole thing. The Adventists had released a publication entitled Questions on Doctrine, and then he entitles it QOD, which he will after in the interview, in the uh, article. He says, this controversial volume affirmed, among other things, now, now I'm going to go back, because you're going to cheat and look ahead. Now, listen carefully. I've told people before, and as a minister, I'm conscious of this, and I don't always do well with it, but I try to, that when you're a public speaker, especially in the area of theology, you're not just responsible for what you say, you're responsible for what people hear. And so it's important that you do your best to make sure they don't misunderstand, and I, doing your best, you still can get misunderstood. But what I want you to get here is this we can say, we in the Adventist Church, well, that's not what QOD really was trying to say. Questions on Doctrine was affirming Adventism. It wasn't trying to say that we didn't believe these things anymore, but I want you to know what the evangelicals read when they read Questions on Doctrine. When they had con uh, dialogues with our leaders. This controversial volume affirmed, among other things, that Adventists did not regard Ellen White's writings as an infallible or canonical authority and that salvation was solely a gift of God's grace, not the result of works. Well, we believe that. Uh, there's some other things in there that will come out. QOD also repudiated such commonly held traditional Adventist doctrines as the notion that Christ had inherited a human nature affected by the fall. Now, let me just interject this here. Today, you'll talk to our church, and we'll say we have no position on that. But I'm going to tell you that in Ellen White's day when she was alive, S.N. Haskell went down to a camp meeting in Indiana. You ever read this? They have the drums and the shouting and the dancing. And one of the things, it was the Holy Flesh movement, 
And one of the things the Holy Flesh movement believed was that Jesus took the nature of Adam before the fall. And Haskell wrote back to Ellen White, and he said, I tried to explain to them the way we believe. Now, how do you tell Ellen White the way we believe if we didn't have a position on it? I'm going to tell you that prior to questions on doctrine, every Adventist had an agreement upon the nature Christ took. You read about it in Desire of Ages. In Desire of Ages, she did, Adam, Christ did not take the field where Adam did, but took the, the nature of man at 4,000 years after the fall. Now, there are other people that I'm going to tell you people read in, and there are nuances of this. I'm not getting into the nature of Christ today. But I'm going to tell you that there was a common agreement, and that agreement was, I wish I had Haskell's, I was going to pull it up, I wish I had Haskell's statement in front of me now, but he basically said, we believe that, I told him our position that we believe that Christ um, took Adam's nature after the fall, but without any taint of sin upon him. And I, he word, the way he worded it is important. But at any rate, that was an understanding in Adventism, and the evangelicals didn't like that. Part of the reason was because it ruins the, the doctrine of original sin, which they held to. QOD also reputed such commonly held traditional Adventist doctrines. And, and I want you to understand that the understanding of the evangelicals is these were doctrines that were Adventist doctrines up until QOD. I mean, there are Adventists today to argue that. It's like, no, it wasn't. But yes, it was. <laughs> As a notion that Christ had inherited human nature affected by the fall and an understanding that the last days believers would achieve sinless perfection. This would be an Adventist belief. QOD was a clear statement of what would be later known as evangelical Adventism. It reflected a sense of change in how Adventists viewed themselves and others. Notice this one. QOD described Adventism as merely one tribe of Israel rather than Israel itself. This was Seventh-day Adventism. This way, Seventh-day Adventism retained its distinctiveness without condemning other Christian churches. In other words, they said, you know, remnant, that doesn't mean we believe that we have the truth. We're one of many who have the truth. That's what's happening there. Now, I can understand them not wanting to make other Christians feel like they were trying to condemn them. I understand that. That's why I say, I, 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 don't, I wasn't there. I understand the motives. But this is the outcome. I mean, listen, let's be honest. There's a reason this seminar is packed out. It's because you guys know that in the Adventist church today, it's like this. I've told, I've told my members as a pastor, it's almost like if I go in and I preach a sermon that's Adventist belief, I feel like I'm on trial in the pulpit for things that used to be just common understanding. This movement continued to evolve throughout the 1970s with two of the strongest advocates being Australian scholars Robert Brinsmead and Desmond Ford, major catalysts of a revival of the doctrine of justification by faith. What they were teaching was not justification by faith. But this is, of course, the evangelical out outlook. The problems of understanding the distinctions between justification and sanctification had plagued Adventism throughout its history. How many of you were in the morning session or heard that? I shared a quote in the morning session where Ellen White says that there are people who tried to define too minutely the points between, the fine points between justification and sanctification. 
I shared a new revelation that I had in preparing for my morning series, and that is the word justification doesn't appear once in the book Steps to Christ. The concept does. And I believe it's because of things like this. Now, they're making big issue and say the Adventists have always wrestled between the two. No, we didn't wrestle between the two. We just didn't make a big deal because we understand the same faith that justifies a person sanctifies a person. And so instead of getting caught up in all the details, just say have faith in Christ and you'll have both. But you'll see why this is an issue as we go on in the mind of evangelicals. Evangelical Adventists were united in their understanding of righteousness by faith. It was justification only. Evangelical Adventists were united with Martin and with Brinsmead, not with the rest of Christianity because there are other Christians. Now, see, if we had met with the Baptists instead of Martin and Barnhouse, the book would have been different. And I guess my point there is our faith needs to be based on Scripture, not the people that we're in a group with, even if they're Adventists. I mean, we've got to know what we believe. We don't shape our faith to say, well, you don't like that doctrine. Let me see. Let's see how we can readjust it. Evangelical Adventists were united in their understanding of righteousness by faith. It was justification only. Sanctification was but the accompanying fruit. And that sounds really good, but there's a problem with it. You'll see that in a minute. In their understanding, justification was distinct from and logically prior to sanctification. We agree with that. Nevertheless, the two were not to be separated. We agree with that. So why is, where's the problem? Evangelical Adventists thus affirmed the Pauline, that's the Apostle Paul, and the reformational understanding of righteousness by faith. Now, they're just saying that Paul and the Reformers all taught a justification only righteousness by faith, which isn't true, which you'll see in a minute, but that's what they hold to. And so their, their idea was the evangelical Adventists after QOD, they finally, finally, now you've got to think about this. The evangelical world is saying, now finally you Adventists are getting on track. Why are we concerned to find the approval of Babylon to tell us we finally got the truth? I mean, look, you've got, I mean, you've got to be able to do the math on this. And I'm not saying that to disparage. When we say Babylon, we're not trying to be critical of other denominations. We're simply saying that there are errors that came into Christianity through the ages of time when people didn't have their own Bible to study, and instead of drawing doctrines from Scripture, and we know this from history, they were just drawing doctrines from tradition. The idea of eternal hell, the idea that the soul lives forever comes from Greek pagan philosophy, not scripture. And so we use that scriptural term Babylon. We're not trying to be insulting. We're just trying to say that God is calling us all back to faithfulness of scripture. The 1980s, he goes on in the article, and I know this is a long reading, but it's I think it's important here. The 1980s have been a time of a real crisis within Seventh-day Adventism as several representatives of evangelical Adventism were fired or forced to resign because of their uncompromising views. I read that and I thought, I laughed at that is what I did. Uncompromising. This is anything but uncompromising. The whole thing is compromise. I mean, the whole thing was... I don't want to be so different from the rest of the Christian world, and so I'm going to bend to be like them. That's not uncompromising. 
For the evangelicals, they're like, yeah, this is uncompromising. Why? Because we're going over to, these guys are going over to their side, and they're feeling real good about that. It's not an uncompromising view. They were fired or forced to resign, it says, because of their uncompromising views. I'm going to tell you that there are people today, there are ministers today in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination who think every bit as much as those who had to resign or get fired back then. The controversy peaked in 1980 when Desmond Ford, an outspoken advocate of evangelical Adventism, challenged the biblical validity of the sanctuary's doctrine, uh, the sanctuary doctrine, the one doctrine that supported Adventism's remnant identity. We're going to talk about that when we get into the identity of, the, of uh, um, our church, the future of the Adventism identity on Thursday, I think. Yes. Ford argued that the doctrine had no biblical warrant and was only accepted because of Ellen G. White. And elsewhere in the article, I thought I would throw this in, he said traditional Adventism, that is the Adventism prior to the evangelical Adventism, it was the outgrowth of the QOD era, rests squarely upon the authority of Ellen G. White. Traditional, traditionalists strongly defend distinctive Adventist beliefs especially those that received their stamp of approval from Mrs. White's prophetic gift. It wasn't Mrs. White's prophetic gift, it was God's prophetic gift, and I, I welcome somebody to disagree with that. That's fine, you can disagree with that. But you could have disagreed just as well that Jeremiah had the prophetic gift in his day, but you can't fault the people who believed he was a prophet of God by saying, if Jeremiah gave some sanction to this, I'm going to lean that way. I am not apologizing because I take the word of a prophet of God over a bunch of scholars. Because scholars make mistakes, because they're men just like I'm men, and women just like you're women. So, I can't say like I'm women, so. But you get the idea. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to show this video clip, and what I might need is a handheld, Taylor, so that we get some volume on this. If one of you could, or do I... Uh, Oh, look at that. My own brother. Yeah, I can turn it on. Did you have a comment here or something? I was wanting to have it in case I did. Yeah, well, good. I'll, I'll keep it up here. Okay, now, now track. I hope you can. You, you should be able to make this out, but let's see. Let's roll with this thing. I'm going to turn my volume up here. And we're glad that you joined us tonight. Tonight, we're our guests are Dr. William Johnson, the editor of the Adventist Oops. Review, the official organ of the Seventh Day Adventist denomination, and Dr. Walter Martin, uh, who is well known for many of his writings on the cults as well as the contemporary religious. Uh, philosophy today in our country. Gentlemen, we're glad that you're here, and I thought that on the topic of Seventh-day Adventism, uh, Dr. Johnson, the man that is sitting next to you, in your book that you put out in 57, Questions on Doctrine, that was the official statement of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination to non-Adventists, to the world in a sense, uh, there was a compliment to the guy sitting next to you, namely that you appreciated the fact that when he, with other scholars from uh, uh, other 
non-Adventist churches came to you and asked questions, you appreciated the fact that he came to you directly, he came to the denominations and, and, uh, denomination and did research. And Walter, I'd like for you to kind of go back as we start. Uh, how did you get into going to the denomination? What was that process and what happened? Well, I was doing research on the various cults of the time, and I'd written a book, The Rise of the Cults, and I received a, a letter from Leroy Froome, a uh, top Seventh-day Adventist scholar and um, historian, uh, the man who wrote The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers and other books. And uh, he took issue with me over the classification of Seventh-day Adventism as a cult. And uh, I contacted him back again. And uh, I said I was sorry he took issue, but that I had quite a bit of information which indicated to me that they were. And he said, well, it wasn't accurate. So I went to Dr. Barnhouse, who was the editor of Eternity magazine. I worked for Eternity at the time. And uh, I said, uh, this is a very responsible man. And uh, I think we ought to investigate this. And Dr. Barnhouse said, uh, why don't you go down to Washington and talk with them? But I know they're a cult because I grew up in Mountain View, California, and I met with them all the time out there, and they were always giving me the mark of the beast and everything else. He said, you're wasting your time. He said, don't, don't bother. Well, you, went, I said, you went down to Washington. Oh, yeah. I went down there, and I met with uh, Roy Allen Anderson, who was the editor of the Ministry Magazine at the time, and uh, the head of all Seventh-day Adventist ministers and missionaries throughout the world. And um, then uh, I met with W.E. Reed, who was a special consultant to the General Conference, Leroy Froome, and uh, T.E. Unruh, who had gotten the whole thing started by uh, discussing with us also in uh, Pennsylvania, where we were headquartered, uh, some of the things about Adventism. Tell us I, what your conclusion was. I came out with the conclusion in 1956. Uh, An Eternity magazine uh, came out with the conclusion that uh, Seventh-day Adventists who acknowledged the things that their denomination were telling us had to be regenerate Christians and evangelicals and could not be classified as a cult. Uh, however, there were Adventists that were on the uh, other side of the fence, and we recognized them too. We spent the time down there going over their literature, uh, which was a morass of contradictions uh, and materials that uh, could be juxtaposed back and forth, either cultic or non-cultic, depending upon who wrote it. We had to go through that with a whole group of scholars and men from their publishing houses and theologians to sift through all of the materials. And the result of it, uh, I propounded a series of questions to them. And the series was uh, later put into the book, which you mentioned before, Questions on Doctrine. It was the first time that a non-Adventist scholar and expert on the cults had gone to the Adventists, sat down with them, discussed their theology openly, frankly, and freely. And I believe to this day, the men I dealt with on the co committee, and uh, Ruben Figure, and the theologians who work with us were thoroughly honest men. I, I was uh, just in theology, theological college when uh, uh, Walter was uh, dialoguing with our leaders. And in fact, we, was, we studied questions on doctrine. I was 57, was my first year in school down in Avondale, Australia. And we went through that book very carefully. Uh, it was applauded by the teachers there. And uh, then later I became a teacher. I taught for 20 years in the Adventist school system, lastly in the seminary for five years, where I was associate dean also. And that book has been highly regarded. Um, in terms of the controversy, John, there was some disagreement when it came out. It, um, Why? Why? What, well, uh, 
remember, I'm just uh, telling you what I've been told. Right. I wasn't around here in the States. Uh, one man in particular, M.L. Andreasen, was not invited to be part of the dialogue. He took strong exception to some of the things in there. I think the two that I've heard mentioned over and over have been um, the nature of Christ, the human nature of Christ, and then some statements relative to the atonement, the use of that word atonement. And um, he, he became quite uh, irate, I would say, and he sent out literature opposing the book, and uh, some people uh, agreed with him. He got a certain following. Uh, however, by and large, I don't think uh, that was a, a large following. Now, that's my assessment. In terms of the denomination stand on the book, we have not repudiated questions on doctrine. The book went through eight printings, 150,000 copies. Now, that's a lot of copies. Mm -hmm. um, it is still used in college classes. Um, some people feel it ought to be reprinted. Um, we can get into that. There is another theological volume, a Seventh-day Adventist biblical theology in process. And we can discuss that. I think that's a major reason why we are not reprinting questions on doctrine. But categorically, I can tell you, the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist Church has not repudiated questions on doctrine. Okay. Well, let's plunge in here, Walter. Uh, uh, why don't you maybe start us off with some of the questions that you have already submitted to the, uh, the denomination, because you are saying that uh, you've heard some things, and you are reassessing what you were told the first time around, as well as some of the, the, uh, the contemporary events that are happening right now. Where would you like to start tonight? I think that um, you have to begin with uh, the background we have already, and also with the fact that the Seventh-day Adventist denomination today, uh, to whom I addressed my questions, responded quite differently than the denomination in 1956. How so? Um, in 1956, uh, Reuben Figure, who considered questions on doctrine and the dialogue, he said, to be the most important single contribution of his entire tenure as president. Mm -hmm. Reuben Figure began to his later life to deplore the fact that there was a strong movement within Seventh-day Adventism to undercut what they had worked so hard to establish in questions on doctrine. And um, so I, after a number of ex-Adventist ministers came to me, after I received literally hundreds and hundreds of letters, documents, boxes full of documents from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, England, the United States, you name it, they're stacked up that we had to go through uh, with people doing research on this subject. And they all were telling the same story, these ministers and these people all over the world. They were saying, we believe questions on doctrine. We cited questions on doctrine. We presented our views in the light of questions on doctrine, and we were disfellowshipped. We were removed from the church. Uh, I'm now painting houses, and I was a former teacher. I was doing this. Now I'm doing such and such. What, what went wrong? So I thought it would be a good idea to ask the question, what went wrong? So I got it. I wish I hadn't done that. I want to go back to it, but I want you to note what he just said, if you didn't catch it. See, this was during the Ford crisis that this interview is taking place. The people siding with Ford, this is who it was, were saying, we're just following what questions on doctrine taught, and we're losing our jobs. just want you to understand what's going on there. Now let me see if I can try to find this, get myself back here to our spot. I've got to do it this way. 
stuff that we had to go through uh, with people doing research on this subject. And they all were telling the same story, these ministers and these people all over the world. They were saying, we believe questions on doctrine. We cited questions on doctrine. We presented our views in the light of questions on doctrine, and we were disfellowshipped. We were removed from the church. Uh, uh, I'm now painting houses, and I was a former teacher. I was doing this. Now I'm doing such and such. What, what went wrong? So I thought it would be a good idea to ask the question, what went wrong? So I addressed three questions to Neil Wilson. Who is the president, uh, the president of, the of the General Conference? Okay. Mr. Wilson didn't have time to discuss it with me, so he referred me to somebody else who didn't have, apparently, the time to discuss it either, and they referred me to somebody else. By the time I did get a response, the first question, I asked three questions, three primary questions. I asked them uh, the question that I thought was tremendously important, which is, uh, do you still hold the questions on doctrine? And the answer was, yes. Same as uh, Mr. Johnson has said. Uh, I thought, that's strange. Uh, all these people can't be wrong, or something's wrong in the communication system. Second question, do you regard the teachings of Ellen G., the uh, interpretations of Ellen G. White of the Bible to be infallible? That is, the infallible rule of interpreting scripture in your denomination. If, for instance, an issue comes up uh, where you're debating something, mm -hmm. and uh, Mrs. White speaks on it, uh, is that the infallible voice? Is that the end of the debate? Is that, is that it? Uh, that question was conspicuously left unanswered. Um, and I was referred to uh, other materials which was rather were rather superficial. And um, I asked... Uh, a third question, uh, asked them about uh, questions on doctrine and uh, why the book went out of print. And uh, since then, I have formulated now a whole new series of questions. All right, we're going to get to those. What I would like to ask uh, Dr. Johnson is, uh, in my hand here, I have uh, just a portion of the Seventh-day Adventist workers, the former Seventh-day Adventist workers, ordained ministers, professors, men and women that have... Uh, been fired. And many of these folks have talked with me, many have talked with Dr. Martin, and uh, the main thing that I keep hearing is that uh, in some way they touched some of the doctrines of Ellen G. White. They disagreed from a biblical basis as far as they were concerned, and because of that they lost their job. I've done a rather careful study of this myself. Remember, I was in seminary, I was associate dean. Mm -hmm. I know these young fellows. I've been in Northern California where we have had a number of uh, our young fellows leave the ministry. Uh, I was in Australia in August and September of this year. In Australia, that figure is 60, 60 total. Well, I've got 100 that are actually documented right here to start with, and uh, I, I'm sure I could get the others for you. Uh, I'd be glad to give you this list here of 100. Is this from the United States, or does this include the figure from Australia? Uh, these look like these are all the United States. I'd be very interested to see it. Mm -hmm. so on my count, the figure in the United States is around 60 to 70. Mm -hmm. And in Australia... I think we got enough of it. I, I don't think... I, I didn't check to see if I had audio for the whole thing. Now that's... That should be an eye-opening interview. That was in the 80s, okay? Samples article was in the 90s. 
and I had a lot of thoughts going through my head there, and I didn't want to, I had to interject once, and then I figured I better not do it again. Folks, I wasn't there in every level of this where it happened. I, I don't want to be critical of individuals, but I believe, you know, I believe what he said. These people are growing up in the Adventist church. They're reading questions of the doctrine. They're being taught that this is what we believe, and they're getting fired. I can't question their sincerity, but I think between Sample's article and even this interview, it should be fairly clear that something dramatically changed between what Adventists had believed and Adventists did believe. Even where Walter Martin's sitting there and he's like, well, I've taken you guys out of the cult category, but now that I'm hearing what some of you guys believe, I'm thinking about putting you back in. And what was really happening is when those leaders sat down with, when our leaders sat down with the QOD, with the uh, uh, Martin and Barnhouse, and were trying to explain Adventism to their satisfaction, they softened down the edges of certain things that when they got to talking to the lay people or reading our publications, if you caught in the interview, they said, well, wait a minute, this isn't meeting up. I mean, you got all these publications and everything's saying something different and people are saying something different. And then our leader said, oh, we assure you it's just a handful of people off in the, in the words of Leroy Froome in one place in the lunatic fringe of Adventism. And poor Emil Andreasen got thrown under the bus on this thing. He was one of our he's one of the one of the uh, chief contributors of the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary. Did some phenomenal work on the subject of the sanctuary. One of the best books on Hebrews written is, I believe, the book by Andreasen. But because some of his positions, and in fact, he tried to stand up against some of these things, and I believe he did it in a very cordial way, at least in the beginning. I say that because, well, I won't go into that history, but I, um, they ended up disfellowshipping Emil Andreessen uh, because he, would ho he was holding to his positions. And his big concern, and I don't have the quote with me, he said, there's a lot of good things and questions on doctrine I can agree with, but he had a real big problem with the atonement. You have to understand something, saints. Now, I'm going to tell you, if, if I were to just use this language and say that the work of Christ was finished at the cross. Probably shouldn't be a very shocking thing to hear because I hear it all the time in ministry in different various places. That's what we believe, right? The problem is this. Seventh-day Adventists have always held to the understanding that the sacrifice on the cross was complete. Just like in the sanctuary, the sacrifice in the sanctuary was complete. But when the sacrifice took place on the altar of burnt offering outside the temple, that wasn't the last part of the service. There still had to come the work in the temple. And the Apostle Paul is clear in the book of Hebrews that Jesus couldn't do his priestly work in the temple because if he was on earth, he couldn't be a priest. So we know that he ascended to heaven to be a priest. But if he's done at the cross, what's he doing in heaven? It makes no sense. And so our understanding is the atonement in the person of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ was complete on the cross. But to just say absolutely that the atonement was done at the cross, then you're left with, well, what's this heavenly sanctuary about and why hasn't Jesus come yet? I mean, for crying out loud, 2,000 years ago, his prayer to his father was, Father, my greatest desire is that those who you gave me be with me where I am. Now, did he do a, a, a Baal thing and he went on a long journey, right? You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Maybe your God's on a long journey. Maybe he's taking a nap somewhere. 
Why isn't Jesus back yet? The only people who have any legitimate answer is the Seventh-day Adventist because we know that he's doing his priestly work and finishing that work in the sanctuary in heaven. And let's be clear on something else. We call the work the work of atonement, which means it's, you heard it stated different ways, right? We can state atonement as what? We break at one okay? You've heard that. at one Atonement is taking two parties that are estranged from each other and bringing them together. Right? Who are the two parties that are estranged? Man and God. Why are they apart? What's in the middle that's blocking them? How can you have atonement while sin is still present? The only way atonement comes is sin has to be pulled out and then atonement. And that was not completed on Calvary. Uh, look, at, look at Hebrews. Now, I'm, I'm doing a lot of history today, but I do want to show you this. And going into this, I thought, well, there's a lot to cover. I'll see what I can do. So there's going to be things left out, but I hope to get the, the main point is made, which I, I haven't got to exactly yet, but we're getting there. You have to have the history first. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is a fascinating book. Hebrews chapter 9, and I want you to notice verse 23. Hebrews 9, 23. The Bible says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, it's speaking of the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, the copy, the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, speaking of animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things, now talking about the heavenly temple, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, it's the earthly tabernacle, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now he's using priest language. The high priest was a representative of the people, so he's appearing for the people, on behalf of the people. And that's what he's saying is Christ didn't appear as an earthly priest. He's in the presence of God in the heavenly temple for us as our representative before the Father. What's he doing there? Notice. Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place. Now, literally here, it's the holy places or the sanctuary, if you do the look in the Greek, every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. So, right, one sacrifice that was complete, and that part of the atonement we believe is complete. But now notice. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared... To put away what? Sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now this is a power, just hold on to this for a minute. Now this isn't saying a whole lot more than Matthew 1.21 when the angel Gabriel said, and you shall call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Here it tells us that he was manifested. What does that mean, manifested? Shown. Where did we see Jesus manifested? Here on earth. So what the apostle is telling us is he was manifested. He came for this reason. This is why he came. This is the whole reason of it. To do what? Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not a hard question. The next one I'm asking you. Is sin put away? Are you going to look in this world and say, look, just go look at the billboards. Drive to Chicago and look at the billboards and tell me sin's put away in this world. Look at the evening TV. I mean, we can go on and on about no, it's not put away, not yet. But notice, this is the work of Christ. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In the context, what the apostle is trying to say is that's what he's doing in the heavenly sanctuary. 
atonement. And as, verse 27, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That part is complete. But notice, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, what? Now, now the New King James says apart from sin. Some Bibles say without sin. I like the readings, and I forget whether it's any ESV or, or New American Standard that says without reference to sin. But they're all saying the same thing, that Jesus is now putting away sin. That's what a priest does. But when he comes back, he's not coming back as a priest. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords, and they don't deal in putting away with sin. They deal with execution of judgment, which is what Jude says when he talks about coming of the coming of Christ. He's coming to execute judgment with 10,000 of the saints. So the point of the apostle here is we're in a window of time where Jesus has come to this earth to put away sin. He's entered into the heavenly sanctuary. That's the work that he's doing now. But when he comes back, he's not coming to deal with sin, which means now is the time to have sin dealt with. But it tells us very clearly what's holding him up. He's putting away sin. But now we're going to go around and say, look, that was all done at the cross. Then Paul's out of his mind. Then this whole idea that we're holding on to of an investigative judgment is ridiculous. We should have never held to it. Ellen White, who endorsed it, is a false prophet. We're in a false movement. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, you don't just take the... And this is what happened. And people, this is why when Ford began presenting what he did, folks, there were entire Seventh-day Adventist churches that would turn into Sunday churches overnight, which is interesting. So Ford himself still is a Sabbath keeper. But this whole thing was about trying to make the Adventist faith more appealing to the evangelical world. I want you to notice some other things here. And because I'm short on time, I want to summarize a key point. I'm going to look at these here, but this is a key point that this is in Paxton's book, The Shaking of Adventism, and it's kind of a key thought throughout, this idea of, of the gospel being justification only. I'm going to read a couple statements, and I'm going to comment. This is what he says. I'm sorry. Paxton says, when justification and sanctification are synthesized, as in the Council of Trent, that's a Catholic council in the Dark Ages, sanctification inevitably swallows up justification. Now, this is concern, and from, from uh, Paxton's viewpoint, and the underlying issue that came out in the Ford crisis that's even debated today in our church is the gospel is either justification heavy or justification only. And if you bring sanctification into it, which is what Paxton's saying here, then it makes people focus on sanctification. Again, I want to recall to your mind that defining the points too minutely. I said in this morning's meeting, justification is equivalent to being born. It's the new birth. It may not be the new birth, but it, it's, they happen at the same time. In other words, when you're born again, you're justified. It, that happens in a moment. And then sanctification is the work of a what? Lifetime. And very simply put, justification is receiving the new life, and sanctification is learning to live it. Because when we receive the new life, we still have the old nature, right? 
And the Bible says the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so our ongoing Christian journey, the whole rest of the journey. So listen, justification, boom, is here. And sanctification is the whole rest of the time. So people say, well, you guys talk about sanctification a lot. Well, that's my whole life. Now, it can be truly said that we can diminish justification from a standpoint of the whole sanctifying process. Yeah, I could get in my head because it's natural for human nature. This isn't just for Christians. Human nature is a naturally save-yourself mindset. And so, yeah, I may forget that the only power I have in a sanctifying life is the same faith that justified me at the beginning. The only power I have is the life I received from Christ in the beginning, and that's got to be all the way through. So, yeah, I could get an emphasis wrong. But to, to, to make the point that just inherently what's going to have to happen, and everybody who believes that sanctification is part of righteousness by faith is just consumed with the idea of their own works is not a valid assessment. And I'll flesh that out in a moment. But this is his concern, as, as Paxton brings it up. I'm going to jump ahead to another one here that he makes. Um, he says, the righteousness of faith is never to be confused with sanctification. It is not sanctification, nor does it include sanctification. The clear distinction between the righteousness of faith and sanctification was the massive breakthrough made by Martin Luther. Okay, now let me explain a little bit here. Here's what's going on. For Seventh-day Adventists, let me tell you why, because then it's like, well, it's just Adventist doctrine. No, it's scriptural doctrine. You know the Bible says we're justified by faith, right? Um, let's just look at it. I, I don't want to assume it. Galatians, let's go to Galatians 2. One of my favorite texts on that is Galatians 2. It's very clear. Okay, we still have, we're going to be squeaking in to the finish line here, coming, cutting it close. Galatians 2, and let's look at verse 16. Now look at what it says here. We're in the middle of one of Paul's thoughts, but you'll get the point. He says, knowing that a man is not what? Justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Pretty clear there that we're justified by faith. Go to Acts chapter 26. In fact, let's see, Acts 26, let's go to verse 17. The Lord Jesus is calling the Apostle Paul, the persecutor, to go and preach the gospel for him, and Paul's recounting that experience. Acts 26, verse 17. The Bible says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are what? Sanctified how? So how does justification come? How does sanctification come? Same faith, saints. Same faith. And so as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that biblically, if you exercise faith in Christ, you have both. And so to separate justification from sanctification in the gospel makes no sense. I mean, how do I do that? I can't believe a different way for one and the other. I believe with my belief, and it brings both to me. Because it all comes to me in the person of Christ. I mean, that's the essence of it. When we're justified, what we receive is not a thing, but a person. 
then the person is Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we have justification and sanctification and redemption, Paul says in another place. You follow what I'm saying? Now, that hasn't been a problem for us. In fact, that's important to us because as Seventh-day Adventists, we know from Scripture that the requirement for heaven is harmony with the law of God. The whole problem with the carnal mind, it is, is the Bible says it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In fact, in Romans 7, verse 14, Paul says, The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. His point is that you have two contrary things. You've got the law, and you've got me. The law is spiritual, I'm carnal. Spiritual thing, carnal thing, they don't go together. It's like oil and water. Now, here's the question. If you have a spiritual and you have a carnal and they don't go together, one or the other needs to be changed. Which one do you think it is? Not a hard question. Should we change the spiritual thing and make it carnal, or the carnal thing and make it spiritual? Is that a hard question? Let me tell you something. The Christian world is trying to make the spiritual thing carnal when they do away with the law of God. That's what's happening. They don't think it through, but when you say, yeah, the law's been done away with, why? To meet us in our sin? Hey, I can't keep it. Oh, you can't keep it? Can you imagine if you told your kids... You know, your kids said, you know, the thing is, I can't keep my room clean. Oh, okay, I'll just get rid of that, and you don't ever have to clean your room. What does that help? So we understand that the law of God is something that is the rule of the heavenly universe, and we've got to be in harmony with it, only we're not in harmony with it. But praise God, righteousness by faith brings us in harmony with it. But for an Anglican minister... Or somebody who believes in predestination. Predestination means God saves you regardless of your choice. You know that, right? Predestination says, I'm going to save you whether you want it or not. And there are some people elected to be saved and some people elected to be lost. And if God chose for you to be lost, there's nothing you can do to be saved. And if God chose for you to be saved, there's nothing you can do to be lost. So commandment keeping doesn't fit in there. An investigative judgment that evaluates our character makes no sense. And what it does for an Anglican to believe that sanctification is part of righteousness by faith is it makes him now a little uneasy because his only confidence is believing that God predestined everything. And so now Paxton's concern is if people believe that they've got to be sanctified too, they're going to worry about their salvation. Well, they could, not necessarily. They're converted, they won't, because if they're converted, they're going to know that their salvation depends on Jesus, whether it's justification or sanctification. And I'm going to tell you, we have two, we have, with this, the impact of this on our church has been that we have leaned more towards justification only. Because we don't want people to get worried about their characters. I can understand it. I can understand not wanting people to stress out and always have their eyes on themselves. It's one of the saddest things about the investigative judgment teaching, because the investigative judgment teaching in reality, if you go back to our pioneers, what it did is it directed their minds and their eyes to where Jesus was and what he was doing. And they realized that Jesus right now at this present moment is working for me to make sure I get in. Amen. And once I realize that, it gives me hope. And so sometimes, many times, we've taught the, we've taught the investigative judgment as it is. Like I've got this. I, I had somebody tell me once, maybe you've grown up with it. Had somebody tell me once, so you know, the investigative judgment, my understanding is that God's going to go, at some point, he's going to get to my name. And he's going to comb through my life. He may have already done it. He may have already done it, and, I, and he decided that I wasn't fit for heaven, and I'm lost, and I don't even realize it yet. 
Like, really? That's what you were taught? Not biblical. It's not what you're going to read in the book Great Controversy. It's not what you're going to read in the book Patriarchs and Prophets or other places. But people have gotten that idea. So I understand where some Adventists have maybe bought in. Ford comes out. Here comes Desmond Ford and says, hey, you don't have to worry about that anymore. But you don't combat a false teaching with a false teaching. And that's where we are. And some of the fallout that's come to us, look, folks, I mean, one of the clearest and most powerful and unsettling examples is in the Gospel of Matthew. Go to Matthew 21 with me. Is it 21 or 22? I've got to remember my, my place. 22. What's our time here? We've got a little bit left here. Matthew chapter 22. I mean, there's a lot more I could say about this, but I, the main point, I've gotten to the main point, and the main point is this whole emphasis where we leaned with QOD was this justification-only emphasis. We stopped talking about sanctification. We stopped talking about character development. We stopped talking about Christian lifestyle because that just robs you of salvation. That's one of the reasons we have to go over lifestyle this week. It's one of the reasons. I mean, I've, had, I've heard this with people. They're like, you know, our young, I see our young people and the way they dress and the way they wear jewelry and stuff like that. And I'm like, look, I take it easy on them because we're not teaching them anymore. We're not teaching them. I can't blame them. We don't teach them because we're afraid somebody might... Say something. Amen. We're afraid that they might lose their security. And we, that happens with us. So we don't talk about lifestyle anymore. Amen. But the thing about lifestyle, it's not about some little thing. It's not about some little thing that you wear, or some little thing you watch. It's that every choice we make has impact on our character and our eternal destiny is determined by our character, not our profession. And you see that in Matthew 22 very clearly. Bible says in Matthew 22, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And they gave excuses. Now I'm going to jump past the excuse, excuse part to the next stage of the story. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on what? A wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here with a, without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now I want you to grasp the significance of this story. The master who's inviting people to the feast, who is that? Jesus or God the Father, right? And what is the feast that they're being invited to? Salvation, right? So they've got the invitation to the feast. Some people reject it, but they go out and they find some people to accept it. So practically, who are these people? They're people who have said yes to what? Salvation. In their minds, I said yes to Jesus. I said, yes, I want to be saved. I want to be part of the kingdom of God, right? This is people who have said, I've, Jesus is my savior. I'm his disciple. I'm a follower of Christ. Here they are. Now they gather together in the room, in the feast. And as the master of the feast comes around, he's inspecting the people. 
And he comes to a man, and the man's not wearing the wedding garment. And he says, friend, where's the wedding garment? Now, what would you say if you were in some feast, you were invited to some party, and the host of the party came up to you and said, hey, where's the outfit I sent you? What would you say if you didn't know anything about that? You're like, well, what are you talking about? What outfit? I don't, nobody said anything to me about a wedding garment. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you respect? But this guy says nothing. You know why he says nothing? Because he knew there was a garment, and I'm interjecting here now, but some people told him he didn't need to worry about having that garment on as long as he accepted the invitation. That garment represents character, the character that every person must have, the righteousness of Christ, but the righteousness of Christ is not, as I mentioned this morning, a trick done by smoke and mirrors. It's a character transformation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as the master of the feast comes and he inspects the guests, here's this man. He knew that he had heard teaching that said he needed a certain character, but there were other people in the church that said that's not a big deal. And in his heart, he felt, I mean, he wasn't ashamed to be there, not initially. He felt totally comfortable, like he had every right to be there. Until that inspection came. And he was found to be naked. He was not clothed with the character to fit him for heaven. And so the man was bound hand and foot and cast out into outer darkness. Now what's Jesus trying to say here? He's making it clear. No matter what anybody else says, no matter what you read in your favorite religious book, other than this one, nobody's getting into the kingdom of God without the character of Christ. And the character of Christ is not, can't be, you know, the parable of ten virgins, what that's communicating is you can't, character isn't formed in a moment. You ever read that parable and it's like the wise virgins, the foolish ones say, can you give us some oil? No, we're not going to give you any oil. And you're thinking, what kind of Christians are they? Right? But the point that's being communicated, that oil and the lamp together represented character. And character is formed by our choices day by day. It's not formed in a moment. You don't form character in a moment. And so in the moment of crisis, they couldn't give character. And in the end of time, in the moment of crisis, it's too late to get character. Characters formed now by the choices we make. So when we talk about lifestyle, things you eat and things you wear, and this, we're talking about developing character piece by piece, walking with Christ, and he weaves that character of his into us. He's doing in the sanctuary in heaven. And when we get discouraged, we need to look to him and realize he's the author and finisher. But if we buy into the idea that we don't need a character fit for heaven, that everything's good now, and if these, these other lifestyle choices are majoring and minors, I know I got a lot of problems. It's just my sin. I'm going to have my sin up till when Jesus comes. We're going to be surprised. We're going to be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You look at the mark of the beast issue at the end of time, that's what it's all about. You notice at the end of time, you go to Revelation, and you got the mark of the beast, everybody has a mark in their forehead. You notice that? Not just the wicked, but the righteous. And in, and in both marks, the Bible says both marks contain a name. You know what name means in the Bible? Name has reference to character. It's a character issue. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can be like, hey, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, I grew up this way, I know what the issue is, it's Saturday, Sunday. And when they come and they tell me I need to keep Sunday, I'm going to say, no way, Jose, forget it. You're not going to say no way, Jose, if your character is wrong. 
because your character will default you to the wrong side. And I don't know if it was in here the other day that my brother Jim brought that up or somewhere I heard him talking recently where he brought that point up with Peter. Peter knew the answers to the test. Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Okay, I know it's coming, right? Three times, right? Once, twice, three times. Didn't bat an eye. Why? Because Peter didn't realize his character already had defaulted him to the wrong side. You don't need to be ashamed of the foundations of our faith. We don't need to be ashamed that we believe that justification and sanctification are part of the gospel. That we don't believe the atonement is fully completed yet because Jesus is doing a work for us. We don't need to be ashamed of that. We're supposed to be reclaiming that. People need to know that so they too can be ready. And what are we doing? The devil's silence is the only church that can say it. So the multitudes are going to be like that poor man without a wedding garment. Lord have mercy. And saints, I'm going to tell you something. I mean, there's so much more we could say. We're going to talk about things this week, lifestyle issues, whatever else. But our hope is like no other hope. We know above all people that Jesus isn't done with his work and taking a vacation somewhere. He's got a footstool in heaven. He's waiting. He's actively right now working so you can be there. So I can be there. And when the Bible in Daniel gives a picture of that judgment, it says judgment was made in favor of the saints. That's what he's doing. So of all people that have hope, our eyes should be directed to Jesus. And when we meet people downtrodden, they're discouraged. We can say right now Jesus is working, ever interceding on your behalf to make sure you're there. If you just say, Lord, take my heart, let me walk with you. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear except that we walk at a distance from Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, as we've considered these things today, there's much more that we could look at. Lord, I just pray that as we come away from this, my point, and I hope it was clear, is not to disparage anybody in the past. Lord, we've all had different things we learn and mistakes that we make and mistaken understandings and what have you. But Lord, we believe, I believe, that we are living in the time where we, at least some of us here, have the privilege, Lord, I pray it's every one of us here, to see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. But Lord, we'll have to be clothed. We have to be clothed the righteousness of Christ that the shame of our nakedness does not appear, Lord. We need that character. It's not a character that we can develop ourselves. But it's a character you work out in us as we walk with you step by step. So Lord, I want to ask today that despite our weaknesses, you'll help us to look to your strength and you would bring us across that finish line. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have here being at camp meeting. I want to pray that you bless each one here in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.